Welcome to Unboard, unplugged, unscripted board leadership. A conversation between boardroom leaders that covers leadership, priorities, and influence. Now, here's Brian Hayward. I'm actually honored today to uh, to be visiting with Tom Reddle, who uh, we'll get into it in a second. But before I get into that, I, I would like to actually just thank our sponsor, uh, Wellington, Ast- uh, Wellington Altus uh, Financial, who uh, have been with us in the, since the beginning. And net proceeds of this podcast go to Pathways to Education, uh, who are opening doors for people to get educated uh, who otherwise wouldn't be able to. So, so thanks, Tom. And um, so my start is uh, on these unscripted things. Uh, starts off with the, the classic elevator ride question. Right. Um, and then we don't know where it goes after that. So uh, you, Brian and Tom, we're happen to get on the same elevator in this building and it's going to the eighth floor. And uh, I happen to be going to the same floor as you. And I say, Hey, uh, what do you do? And like, what brings you then? What's the background that got you to be on the eighth floor or go, the elevator going to the eighth floor with, with me today? Okay. Well, Brian, um, I, I am visiting one of the companies I work with and I'm a corporate director and I help people and companies grow. That's it. That's it. <laughs> usually, usually that prompts other questions like what companies, how many companies, how do you do that? And so how do you do it? What does that mean? Why do people want you? Well, I do it. I do it uh, as a mentor as a coach, and those are two different things. And I also do it as a corporate director, and I sit on a handful of boards, um, many of which I chair. And that's a different role as well. So a uh, funny thing is, uh, if you go to um, my own little blurby website, mm-hmm. you'll see that I put myself out into the public place as a coach and mentor. Yes. And, and uh, but you, you just, when, when you answered the question, you actually sort of differentiate those things if I heard it correctly that there's a difference between a coach and being a mentor yeah so so people are what do they want do they want Tom the coach Tom the mentor and what's what's the difference well because of my background uh, most executives want my mentorship uh, but I distinct I distinguish what a coach is to them because I took coaching training uh, quite late in my career and as I was approaching retirement of my role as a leader of a business I, I went to coaching school. I said, you know, I think it's an important skill set to have. And I sure wish I took it, you know, two decades earlier because it was an extremely valuable uh, training for me to take. And uh, it was intense. It was about 70 hours worth of training. And uh, it is quite distinct and different. And I think as mentors, uh, we often end up uh, doing a disservice to the people that we're mentoring because, when we're in an advisory role, we, we take on the hard work of thinking and figuring things out sometimes for our mentees. And that's where the coaching skills come in, uh, come in handy because it it keeps the, the obligation of the, of finding the solution on the person that I'm working with. And so so it's often a dance where, where I, I like to get into a coaching uh, relationship, but often people want me to mentor because I've got experience uh, as a director, but I've also got experience as an executive growing a business. So I, I, the model that I, that I was exposed to has got therapy at one end 
and right. and consulting at the other where the consultant provides you with this solution. Exactly. And, and the therapist basically says, oh, you're all screwed up. Like, well, let's, yes. let's talk about what you're, how you grew up as a kid. <laughs> so, exactly. Exactly. And so where do you land on that spectrum of between being a therapist and a, and a consultant? Well, I know, I know when it starts getting into therapy, I know when I'm out of my league and I'm out of my expertise. So I, I, I flag that. And uh, I agree 100%, Brian. It's, there's, there's these different models. So the one I use is at one end, you would have a therapist where you're doing you know, deep transformational interpersonal work. And I think people that are trained in therapy actually can be the most transformational coaches. Um, people who have a lot of relevant business experience or leadership experience um, would fall on the, uh, on the other end of the spectrum, which would be more advisory. Um, so I would say at one end where you would have advisory, kind of a, a notch over from that, you would have mentoring where you are more suggestive instead of uh, more less directive, more suggestive. And then coaching is actually the art of asking a lot of questions and doing a lot of you know, a lot of hard listening, which is actually a lot of people think they're good listeners, but it is a trainable skill. And most of us are not that good at it. And so mentoring would be closer to advisory, but not directive. Uh, again, like it would be more suggestive. And then coaching would be more questioning where the coachee um, has to do the hard work and, and you can lead them down the garden path a little bit if you know where, where you want to take them, but they need to do the work of figuring it out. And that's more empowering and they own the outcome, whether success or failure, they own the outcome. So they're responsible for it. And that's more developmental for them. Yeah, no, I, I would agree with that. I think it's the challenges, you know, uh, I, I, I don't have probably the training that necessarily you do. And, and so maybe I've gone to the school of hard knocks, but people seem to actually take some, uh, get some value out of what I, what I uh, provide. And, but it's, it's, uh, it's hard though, because when you're a manager, mm -hmm. uh, you're supposed to, you know, bark out solutions and not ask nice. questions. So, I mean, that, that probably makes you a good director too, because isn't that what directors are supposed to do is ask a lot of questions. They do actually, the, the skill sets are quite transferable. And I look at a board, you know, it functions similar to an executive team. It's just not as quite in sync because it's, you know, we don't work together every day. It's more of a quarterly type of relationship. So those skills are paramount for directors. And I think the coaching training is, is excellent for directors. So, so when I was doing a little search, you know, just to make sure that I, I had some intelligence on, on what yeah. I, where I might want to go. Uh, so you're with a company called Shandos, which is, yeah. uh, is a construction company. Correct. Correct. And, and, and so, um, I'll tell you where my neurons were going off is that you're an, if I understand them, if it's still the case, you're, you're the executive chair. Correct. Yes. I retired as CEO, uh, about two years ago. So I was, I'm, I'm actually involved with a company right now, chairing it. And, and I went, how did I got into that? I, I started, I had lunch with, with a guy that was an executive chair and, yes. and he said, Oh, you've written this, this book. So what does an ex executive chair do? So and, uh, <laughs> that's a great question. And, and, and I said, I haven't got a hot clue. I'm, I yeah. don't know. So now I, I figured I go to the source. Okay. Tom must know. Cause he's one. <laughs> Okay. So, so to give you some context, um, I was the CEO of the company for 
you know, close to 20 years. I've been with the company for 20, about 25 years. And the company has grown and transformed a lot over that period. But as it was getting to the time for not retirement, but the time really to transition to the next generation of leadership, because, you know, they were ready and very capable. Um, I moved into the role of executive chair because uh, for a few reasons. One is uh, a chair is, it's more, it's more work than a chair. Um, So there are some executive functions. And one of the reasons in our case that there are executive functions is because we moved to a shared leadership model. So we do not have one report to the board, which would be a CEO, and then everybody else reports, you know, would be um, lower on the org chart. We have a CFO, a president, and and a COO that all report to the board. So the board in our case has three employees, whereas in most cases, the board has one employee. So that's a shared leadership model, which is being adopted by more and more companies, but it's more work for the board. So the chair, who is kind of the, the, the pivot point between the board uh, as a whole and the executive um, is working with three people instead of one person. So that, that would be one reason why it's, it's a larger work obligation than you know, chairing a quarterly meeting with a monthly check and like a lot of chairs would be. And then secondly, by, because of my history with the company and my relationships in the organization, um, I, I'm just simply more involved and I keep tabs with more people. And in addition to my role as a director, I do coaching and mentoring of some of the executives and some of the high potentials and some of the director level people in the organization just to stay connected and uh, be a support role. But the key difference between a CEO and an executive chair is you, is I have moved from being a leader of the organization to a governor. And, and that is hard to do for somebody who's been in that seat Uh, the CEO chair for a long time. Um, So it's really important maneuvering in that, that you let the next generation of leadership lead the company. So how how would you define that? Cause that's, I've had to do that myself and I, I, Mm -hmm. and, and, uh, and then there's people that they, they want, they've come, I get approached probably you do as well. So, you know, you're agent stage sort of thing and say, you know, what I'd like to do is, is be a director and be on boards in the future. Yes. Like, how do you do that? I, I just, I've spent, you know, 25 years or whatever the number is yeah. as being a senior manager, VP, da, 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 da. Right. And, right. and, and now, now I want to be a director. So yeah. how do you, how do you, how do you get that job? Uh, and my take on it is I say you, you they're two, they're apples and oranges and it's, totally. you can't just make that leap. So how in talk, I'm interested in your sort of, thought or with the differential you see between as you become a governor from being yeah. a CEO. Okay. Well, I would agree, Brian, it is apples and oranges and um, a governor, a governing role is not an extension of an executive role. Okay. So in my case, there's two parts. My, the executive part of executive chair is somewhat an extension, um, but the chair part is not an extension. So I am a director and I chair the board as, as, a, as somebody who has experience being a chair. So I have had board experience outside of my own company and I've been developing that skill set for some time. So I do have a resume and a track record as a director and as a chair, independent of my work at Shandos as an executive. So I, it, it is not, it's not a given that the former CEO becomes chair of the board. I'm chair of the board because 
because of my governance resume, not because of my executive resume. Yeah. So I, I could sit on the board as a director or actually a lot of best practices would suggest that I should just vacate. But um, in our case, because of my governance experience, um, I stepped into that role. Yeah, I, I actually, my, my own paradigm on it is I think there's too much prescription governance these days. Yes. They say, oh, you should leave or you should do that, or we have term limits. So, I mean, what if you had like the best bloody director in the world and he's go, oh, you've been here X years, time for you to leave. Um, yes. That's just the way it is. And I, I, I just think that's too prescriptive, I guess. Or another one of the, uh, you know, folks that I, I, talk, I talked to on the podcast called it um, uh, checkbox of uh, spreadsheet governance. Was yes. Yeah. So I, I, I agree. That's actually a word that I use as well. That like, governance is not a prescription and a good director and particularly a good chair as a leader of the board um, needs to understand the governance tools and methods, but these are tools to have in the toolbox and the needs and circumstances of the organization determine which of the tools you should be using. I've seen cases where people take, you know, ICD best practices, governance models and plop them on private companies and management doesn't know what the heck hit them and they don't know how to respond to it. And it actually can become quite, it can create a lot of work for starters and it can become quite ineffective. So I, I love that word. I use it all the time. Good governance is not a prescription because a lot of times people default to best practices and they think that those are, are a prescription. Whereas they shouldn't be. Yeah. I, anyways, just I'm, I'm philosophizing here for two seconds, like best practices. How do those practices become best practices where the people that, you know, somebody had to try to do something different. Yes. Right? Yeah. Which wasn't a best practice at the time and they experimented and it became a best practice and then everybody else followed it. But uh, let, let me, let me, let me poke you. Cause I'm just sort of viscerally reactive. Okay. co-leader co-leadership model so in, right. the, in the spirit of fun and spontaneity okay I, I recall scratching my head uh on the shared leadership model when there's this company called blackberry and jim balsillie and uh, mike lazaritis uh one of them started worrying about whether we get a hockey team in hamilton and kind of took the eye off the ball and i think people are going like do these guys understand that you know, there there's competition out there and they seem to be distracted and do they actually have a shared strategy and, and wouldn't it be better? Wouldn't, I mean, wouldn't Blackberry be a better company today? Maybe if there was only one leader, mm -hmm. uh, okay. that was, that's my poke. That's my poke. Oh, actually. Sure. No, you, can, you can poke all you want, share leadership. So first off, it depends on how the organization functions. So at Shandos, uh, Shandos is a leader um, in the country in collaborative methodologies for design and construction. So that's a whole other conversation, but collaboration, high performance uh, teams are collaborative generally and collaboration, you know, a lot of people say they're collaborative, but, but it's, there's actually methodologies and there's practices to achieve collaboration. So the C-suite at Shandos uh, being a shared leadership model is just another way that Shandos manages its business. They have shared leadership in, in the districts, which are the branches. They have shared leadership in teams, and they actually have shared leadership uh, methodologies in the design and construction of construction projects. So when you think about 
uh, shared leadership, what are the benefits? And so I think that's a direct response to your question. And I would turn that on you when you when you think about a, I hate to use the word now, best practice, but on boards, we commonly have skills matrices, right? Yep. So, and we say that a board is a collective mind and we want the diversity, whether it be cognitive diversity or gender diversity or whatever, uh, whatever indicators we have that people approach problems differently, that represents diversity. And as a whole, the board is better and stronger and can make higher quality decisions as a collective mind than any individual director could, correct? And we accept that in terms of normal board constructs. Would you agree with yeah, that? My, my ICD brain is actually a governance professional going, isn't that called groupthink if we have a collective mind? <laughs> so, no, oh, no, 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 quite the opposite. No, no. So that's why you have diversity. So you have psychological safety. So people are okay to, to speak up and you have people who approach problems differently for whatever reason. Maybe they, they're, they're just wired differently or they have uh, a different cultural context or a different gender background, right? All of these things prevent groupthink because people are looking at things differently. You get groupthink when you have people that approach problems the same way. So traditionally, if you have, you know, pale male, stale, a bunch of, you know, old, re half retired white guys, they all kind of with similar. Hey, background. watch out there. I happen to be one of those. No, not quite. So. I resemble that comment. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but, but that's, that's the, that's the common struggle, right? Is, is that's okay. It's just not okay. If you have a whole room of them. Right. So what's your take though, then, then, because there's, I almost would say a cottage industry that's developed around ESG now and, and people yes. measuring this like crazy. And, yes. and so is that part of your metrics? And it, do you kind of find your way to diversity through okay. your own unique, not necessarily <laughs> best practice? Yes, it is. It is. So let me finish answering your first question. Yeah. I'm going out of roundabout. I'm heaping oh. the questions on you. Okay. So, and then I'll, I'll get to your second question. So your first question <laughs> is like, how the heck does shared leadership work? And why yep. does it work? Okay. So we look at people who we, we assemble in a board construct, people that have got different backgrounds, right? So we have our skills or attributes matrix. It's called a skills matrix. I like calling it a skills and attributes matrix because gender is not a skill. It's an attribute. And then we want a mix of different people that look at things differently. And then you put them together and there's, you know, a plethora of research that is, that, demonstrates that higher quality decisions will be made when you have diverse thinking in the group that makes a decision and that a group can make higher quality decisions than any single individual. So why would that not apply to executive teams? Well, it does in fact, right? So you take the, you take a dominant position of a CEO out of the equation and you make executives equal. And then you take a collection of them who are all quite different in terms of how they process information and approach problems, they have different skills and different backgrounds and you put them together. And if you can employ a psychologically safe environment where they all speak up and you don't have somebody dominant um, kind of railroading decisions, same as in a board, you will get higher quality decisions and you get better bandwidth. You get a lot more horsepower at the top end of the org chart and you get higher quality decisions. Now it's a little bit more work to get decisions because you want a consensus build, but the, the quality is higher. It's it's no different than what's been demonstrated in any team. Yep. Does, that, yep. does that answer your question? 
Yeah. Yeah. I, I think so. I, you know, I, I'm reminded, I actually, I think every football play that, that a coach puts up on a whiteboard ends yeah. up with a touchdown or every hockey, when, when they call a timeout and you're with 30 seconds left in the, in the game and, and yeah. somebody's down one goal and the guy is writing scribbling on the, on the whiteboard, it's supposed yeah. to go in the net, but sometimes things go off. So I, I'm, I'm with you. It's it, on the playbook. But yes. Shando's, uh, you've been around like 40 odd years, I guess, uh, or something like that. Yes. And there must have been something that went, didn't go in the net. And how, oh, how, do you, how do you deal with accountability in a shared, are we all, did we all screw up? Or is there, do we, is there some, a point in time when the fingers come out and we start pointing at who might be the culprit and yeah. it needs to be voted off the island? <laughs> humans are humans. So that that's one of the reasons why we have an executive chair, because managing a dynamic of three is, is, you know, more than managing a dynamic of one. So it's, it's, it's a higher commitment on the board chair. So that's, that's where that role comes in. It's, it's an enhanced board chair role, but it's not a CEO role, but there's some little elements of, you know, if I was CEO and, and managing the same or overseeing the same people, there's a little bit of that, but if it's functioning well, which it has been for almost two years, it's actually not a lot of work because we do a lot of work in terms of getting people to appreciate their differences. So when you have people who are cognitively different or they, they think different, um, a lot of times they'll, they'll be advocating their position and just trying to prove they're right. Um, and, and so they move from, they, they don't get into a role, into a position of inquiry, they get in their curiosity and inquiry, they're in a position of advocating their own opinion. So instead of approaching each, so, so there is actually training in that. And that happens in the collaborative processes is, and that, that's your coaching skill set. So we actually train our managers to be good coaches. Our, one of our key areas of management development for people who are responsible for uh, the development of subordinates is coaching training, how to ask questions and how to listen, as opposed to be, being directive. And when you're directive, you're in a, quite often inadvertently doing the thinking for a subordinate, which is unintentionally inhibiting their development. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, one of the bugaboos these days is uh, there's a war, war for talent. Yes. Um, and, and my own take on it is that uh, the, 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 the paradigm's changed. It's maybe COVID has been part of it where people are motivated differently. It used to be sort of the, to use the pale male stale uh, sort yeah. of, model uh you worked hard and you sort of try to climb the corporate ladder etc 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 and um and that doesn't seem to be the same model that that attracts people so are you are you finding uh do do you feel more like you're in the same war for talent as other people that just about every organization is dealing with now or or do, do you find your approach is actually helping you attract and retain and and be uh, if it was Zelensky, you're you're taking the Russians out of uh, no. out of Kiev. <laughs> so. Yeah, well, it is it is a war for talent. So so to answer your question, uh, there yes, Shandos, uh, and keep in mind I work with with half a dozen companies now. So that's Shandos is still my main one, but but there's others, and and I'm seeing the war for talent, you know, in the red zone on the risk heat map for you know, pretty much all the boards I'm involved in. So, so it is, 
it, it is out there. Shandos is not immune to it, uh, but Shandos and some of the other companies I work with are looking looking at different ways of fighting the war for talent. So it is an issue. Um, some people are fighting it just by trying to pay more or recruit more or use golden handcuffs or benefits and salaries. You know, that's part of a, a strategy. But the whole notion of developing people will help with engagement in my mind. And it will help yeah, absolutely. attraction and retention because, you know, our generation, we go to work and, you know, we do what we're told and we do what's expected of us. And that's what we expect of us. But the gen, but there's a lot of people now who they want meaning in their work. And, and if people are learning and growing and they see opportunities, they see a future, a future, it's not, it's not all about money. And that's one of the things that I would say the boomer generation is having a, a trouble figuring out because, you know, you think that you pay somebody, they should be showing up and putting in the time and they're not, and that's not enough. And boomers often have a trouble computing with what, what the issue is. But the issue is a lot of times people, they don't have to work. Um, people, you know, of, of a younger generation don't necessarily want to accumulate assets. Wealth creation is not as important, but they want meaning and they want purpose in their work. So a purpose-driven organization, I know, you know, a number of companies. So Shandos is very, very strong in being a purpose-driven organization. Um, diversity and inclusion. You mentioned ESG previously. You know, an inclusive environment that has a diverse makeup is great in terms of uh, fueling the ideas for innovation. You need to create an organization that's psychologically safe where people are prepared and comfortable mm-hmm. speaking up. You can have diversity, but you will not uh, access the value of diversity unless you have a psychologically safe environment. These things all plug into team performance. And then we train our managers how to use a coach approach because a lot of managers see themselves and they see their job as to organize and organize people and tell them what to do. If you t- as soon as you tell people what to do and you start thinking for them, you inhibit their professional development and you also inhibit their ability to, uh, to own their outcomes and achieve job satisfaction. So using a managers use a coach approach, more questioning and listening and people are figuring stuff out they feel better about themselves and, and their, their work and they grow better. And that also helps you scale an organization. So all these things yeah. lead together. Yeah. So one of the aspects of like of Shandos, at least as I understand is, is, and it sort of crosses over is, is employee ownership. So it's it, it, that I'm correct in that. Is it widely held or is there, and is there, do you have to be an, an owner to be like, talk to me about how you designed it or, or the pitfalls in that? Because I think, I think, you know, there's my sense of it is there's more organizations looking at it of the so-called war for talent and yes. looking at whether an, an employee ownership is, is actually maybe a way of, you know, slipping some handcuffs onto those people so that they have something to lose if they actually want to go somewhere else and, or, or yeah. create a different environment. I, it, there's all sorts of reasons for doing that. And so I'd be yeah. interested in, in the philosophy and, and, and the pitfalls and the, and the other, other aspects of it. Yeah. So Shandos is, uh, you're correct. It's employee owned and it's broad based. So it wasn't always broad based. So it used to be what I would call key employee owned. So when I joined 25 years ago, I became an owner and I was shareholder number seven. So there was a seven of us today. There's about 007. <laughs> Pardon me? 007. I said 007. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yes. And today there's about 250. So anybody who works at the company, 
uh, after a year, you know, provided that you're not about to get fired. If you've been there for a year uh, and uh, there's an annual offering cycle, so you, you will be offered to purchase some shares. Whether you choose to or not is totally a personal decision. So it is, it's a way of sharing. It's a way of creating community. And it's a way of respecting the contribution that every employee makes to the organization. The amount of shares that a person is entitled to own is a function of their performance and responsibility in the organization. So basically, if you move up the org chart, you have an opportunity to purchase more. Whether you do or not is a personal decision. It's an investment decision. And uh, it's, it's, it's done very, very well financially for a number of people. But it's, like I said, it's an expression of, it's partly an expression of gratitude through sharing. But it can be used as a recruiting tool. Um, if you want to recruit somebody, uh, you know, somebody who's, you know, a brand name person with influence in the marketplace, um, it's a useful tool for that because it's, it's equity in a business. And, uh, you know, hopefully it gets people thinking longer term, thinking more like an owner, more longer term orientation. And, and it's, it's part of a series of things that are, what I would say, mutually reinforcing uh, in kind of the people and financial strategy of the business. And then also, it allows the business to perpetuate. So, for example, as, as uh, I retired as CEO of the company, um, I had to sell most of my shares because as executive chair, I'm, I don't have the responsibility that I had as CEO. So I have to sell down my equity. And so it forces leadership renewal and ownership renewal. So the organization can perpetuate indefinitely. Yeah. I, I think I, I, I'm a big fan of, of, of employee ownership to, to bring about alignment and knowing that when you're dealing with a tough problem or if it's, you know, putting in extra hours or whatever it is, that you know the person is sitting beside you, scratching their head is is has got the same interest at heart. You know, we're, you know, and I, you know the the issues that I think are you know um, are problematic is like okay, so I I, I want to build a deck or I want to take my family on a vacation. Can I can I sell my shares or I, I have this situation? There's a, there's a lot of, of uh, devil in the detail kind of stuff. Is, is there, is there a, a devil in the detail that you have, you encountered or you kind of scratch your head and think, geez, I don't know a way around this one. That's really simple. There, there's no perfect system. Um, there there's, I've, I've worked with, you know, many companies who are interested in starting employee ownership and there's, there's a whole bunch of different reasons why people want employees to be owners. And there's a whole bunch of reasons as to why employees want to be owners. So there's reasons for buying and there's reasons for selling. And uh, there's no system that I would say is perfect. Uh, and we're actually on our third system since I've been with the company. Oh, okay. Yeah. And, and, and some, for example, a lot of companies have got, uh, you know, some key employee owners, and then they have a company, which is an ESOP, an employee share ownership program, right. and they sell ESOP shares to rank and file employees, and they're class B non-voting. That's a very common structure. Um, yeah. Chandos, you know, that was in our first couple structures. Currently, uh, our, our current structure, which we've had around for over a decade, and it works quite well, there's one class of shares. So, a, the receptionist or construction laborer had exactly the same class of, and we're actually limited partnerships, so they're units, they're not shares. But they right. have the, there's one class of units. 
And there's one vote per unit. And as CEO, I had exactly the same class of units with exactly the same voting rights as the construction labor that had been with us for one year. Now, yeah. the quantity is different, of course, but there's no second-class citizens. You know, I just didn't even like the sound of class B non-voting. It just sounded terrible coming out of my mouth. So um, we elected for a single class. Yeah. It's called a second class or yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah class B. Not, not class B, but you're a second class. Okay. Yeah. And then and then the other one is that you know, shares in private companies, you know, tend if it's a well-run business, they they return. The financial returns are strong. Yeah. So people can sell them, but they rarely do because they're making good money with it and they accumulate a nest egg and you know, come t- come retirement time, if you've been with a company for a long period of time, your retirement is gonna be nicer because of it. Yeah, I, I, it's it's. As I said, I, I I'm I'm a big fan of it. But having been through uh, some different situations with startups and early stage, you know, mid stage companies, and and uh, it, it, you know, the whole uh, to your point about having one class of shares. I think you know one of one of the things that that a lot of uh, early stage entrepreneurs don't f- fully appreciate. Is it if they go for a series A and engage with venture capitalists in series B, yeah. that the motivations can be really different uh, yes. for those shareholders and they have their own pieces of paper, which is really um, manifestation of their own interests. Because, yeah. So, uh, you know, one. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, you, 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 you know, you've got, uh, I mean, there's other things that you're involved in. That I just find it fascinating because it's sort mm-hmm. of, you know, we talked a little bit about ESG and I don't know if we, I, we've fully exhausted whether or not you have a formalized ESG, you know, yes. um, system, but maybe deal with that one and I'll, I'll go wander off somewhere else. Okay. Okay. Well, ESG is a whole, a whole conversation in itself. So Shandos, again, A is as a purpose-driven organization. So we exist to build a better world. And then you can start unpacking that and we could talk about that for an hour. But the way the ESG uh, policies is not just because it's the right thing to do, and it is the right thing to do. We try and connect it into making the business better. So social responsibility and profitability, we believe, are not mutually exclusive. So Shandos is, for example, a certified B Corp. So a B Corp, uh, which some people haven't heard of is yeah no i i help me with that one because okay. i i did i did enough research to know that you're a b corp yes you know, i had to go like what does that mean okay so b corp is an international standard uh of a third party audit and verification procedure that confirms that you are you meet certain thresholds for corporate social responsibility so there's environmental there's uh, governance, there's diversity, inclusion, uh, community benefits. So it's it's an auditing process. So it's kind of like fair trade is to coffee. It's kind of like uh, lead certification is to sustainable buildings. And B Corp exists worldwide. Uh, there's some famous B Corps like uh, Patagonia is a very famous B Corp. And you, so it's an independent, like everybody says they're socially responsible, but you have to be audited by a third party. So Shandos is uh, the largest commercial general contractor that's a B Corp in the world. It's the only significant size contractor that's a B Corp in all of North America. And so, so it's a leader. So that's, that's 
a verification. So it's like a stamp of approval from a third party that you're socially responsible. But the point, so that's the B Corp. Um, the, the purpose of the organization, you know, weaves into diversity and inclusion. So for example, uh, a lot of people think that it's a trade-off to uh, be a socially responsible organization and you have to trade off profitability. Um, there is more and more evidence that purpose-driven organizations are financially more profitable and are more resilient to shocks in the economy or other shocks to the industry. And we'll take diversity and inclusion, for example. Shandos highly values innovation. So how, what are the contributors to innovation? So you need to have a culture that supports innovation. And the first step, say the first step in that culture is to have an inclusive environment. So everybody needs to feel like they belong. And then you mix in diversity because as we, we talked about already, diverse people with diverse ways of approaching problems with diverse backgrounds, with diverse ways of thinking as a group can produce more ideas. So if you have a safe environment where everybody belongs and then you mix, mix in diversity, you get the benefits of diversity. And then that creates ideas. So we call that ingenuity. And so this is our flywheel. So inclusion plus diversity will give you ideas, which is ingenuity. Now the world is full of ideas, but that does not produce innovation. Mm -hmm. You need to have a permissive environment for the ideas, the ingenuity is the spark to actually translate into an innovation because an innovation is an idea that's been implemented. And then with innovation, you actually have to have a good re relationship with failure because you have to understand that failure is Absolutely. a part of the learning yeah. process. So, so that would be a way where our ESG practices for diversity and inclusion and inclusiveness actually is supports and is part of our um, our, our need and desire and strategy of being an innovative organization. So this creates ideas. And then there's mechanisms to acknowledge ideas and reward ideas as an example. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm, I'm actually kind of a, a graduate of Hemingway who liked simple words. And, and so I, mm -hmm. it, I'm unpacking what you're saying. Let me, let me put it in my own language, which is that, you know, you're, you you have your own scorecard through B Corp. That yes. is 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 it's not an ESG thing where you're counting how many people fit into what pigeonhole, and right. and you know hitting uh, the return button on this spreadsheet to give you a core. You're actually doing this deliberately with attributes. Uh, in mind in order to drive certain outcomes like innovation and, and action and, and embracing uh, the possibility of failure. Cause we don't go out intending to fail. Right. So Correct. Um, Correct. maybe that that's more simple words than I intended. Uh, sometimes uh, I, I get long winded. <laughs> so, no, no, no. Well, so do I. <laughs> that's why I so you, so you, you mentioned that you're involved with, with several other boards. I don't I, Cause I have no idea how many that you're involved with. And, and, but my, my question wasn't to sort of like how many and what are they as much as have you brought some of these ideas over to the other boards or, or are they being received or, or if they're not, why? Well, the shorter answer is Yes. And, and sometimes that's the best short answer. Is. Yeah. <laughs> I get long winded too. That's why it's not a 10 minute podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
I, uh, so the answer is yes. I have one of the reasons I have been recruited for some boards is because Shandos is very noteworthy in, in the business community for having done some very interesting things. So that, that helps. And then in the conversations I'm finding most companies, most well-intentioned companies um, who are about more than just money uh, are very, very interested in these things and the way that Shandos has done it. And, you know, Shandos is not perfect. And some companies have done some things better than Shandos. But I do, I, I would say that one of the biggest benefits of sitting on a number of boards is the cross-pollination. Like I'm learning and everything that I learn from one company can cross-pollinate into the other organization. So that breadth of experience um, benefits all the organizations that I work with as a director. And I would also say that when I talk about well-intentioned companies that really want to have an impact as well as be financially successful, um, that is the companies I work with. There are other companies that don't care about anything but money, but I don't sit on those boards. They're not attractive to me. Yeah. Well, I, I think that, I think the, the business paradigm is shifting because it, I, it used to be shareholder premise uh, supremacy. And maybe it's yeah. because uh, we just, this again, brought back under the cliche war on talent. Yes. Um, you know, we just, the pe- people are not going to, and, and to some extent, I think, you know, when the ESG thing, what is done is the, the thing this yeah. is focus so is actually as you mentioned the word purpose, Tom. Yes, probably six times. Yes. and to me, you know, organizations that that ultimately sort of lose their way in their focus, it, yes. it's not because they have a good ESG policy or a, or a bad one. It's because they've actually lost their sense of purpose. Yes, and so perhaps you know. Because there's, as I said, there's a sort of a, in my estimation, a bit of a cottage industry around ESG, yes, as, as per se. But maybe the magic inside that is yeah. that it forces you back to to purpose and or what we used to call mission or like what are we trying to accomplish here? You got Why it. do we exist? And yeah. and and the, the 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 generations before you and I are much more interested in. Why are we doing, why am I going to work? What's, what's my, why am I, why am I getting up and, and going or not even maybe going somewhere? Why am I logging on to zoom? Yes. Um, and that why has become really central to attracting, retaining and motivating people. And so uh, lots of what you're doing and, and uh, with employee ownership and, and B Corp and that I think fit into, to, uh, celebrating and and making that why a central part of the organizations and 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 it makes it attractive, uh, especially to people that are that are curious too and want to be able to succeed, but also feel safe if they're going to if if it happens to be they fail. Yes, yeah, I, I you nailed it. I agree one hundred percent. And and I would just add to that, you know, you talk about the ESG industry. ESG as a consulting industry is because a lot of companies are lost. They don't know how to navigate through it. But that whole why is critical. Like, what's the point of the exercise? Why are we in business? And if you just say, well, we're just here to make money, you're not going to get the people and you won't be making money. 
So. And, and that's where my misgivings are really on the ESG file is that sometimes you could tick a lot of boxes to say, yeah, we did this and this and this. And, yes. and look at look at where we ranked on the report on business top one, whatever, thousand or hundred. Yes. Um, but really underneath it all is, is the why and the purpose. Is, is that evident and, and communicated repeatedly so that uh, everybody that's going up to my the beginning of this conversation, the elevator ride, you say, yes. oh, no, I, I'm doing this. Why am I doing this? Why am I here? I am yeah. here because that, 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 that. So, yeah. yeah, and then show that you mean it. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I honestly, um, uh, you know, what I, I'm actually reminded in just this conversation of something that uh, I think a mutual acquaintance of Mary Cameron said to me, which is that yeah. diversity is actually a speed bump to group think. Uh, yes. it, it actually prevents people from, so, you know, great model and and i'm sure there's people that are going like no you can't have shared leadership and all these employees owning the company and oh my god it's 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 probably going to tip over any day but um i i celebrate the the originality and 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 the purposefulness of what you're doing and it's been fascinating so tom uh with that i I just want to again thank uh the sponsor wellington altus financial for their support of this which uh, ultimately goes to pathways to education a great uh project uh for bringing young people up to uh, what their potential is and uh you know with that uh i just again uh, thank you and um welcome um have a great afternoon whatever is left okay all right thank you brian unplugged unscripted board leadership this is unboard